This message was recorded at Vision Baptist Church in Alfred, Georgia. It is our prayer that you will be blessed by the preaching of God's Word. And uh, we just got back from the couples retreat. Pastor Wilkerson did a great job, had a lot of fun. I found a book that I'm trying to find cheaper. It's um, on eBay for $45, and nothing should be $45 like that. But I'm looking, the title of it has got me intrigued, and it says, uh, The Happy Home and the Heart That Makes Them. And I just can't get over that, Brother Gibby. I'm just thinking about how it's just such a great title for a book because it's a, a home that is made by your heart, that we work on our marriages, we work on our homes by working on our heart because nothing else really matters. If you, have, if you make a change that's external but you don't really change the heart, it's not going to last very long. It's going to go back to that wherever your heart is at. And Jesus is doing surgery here working on our hearts. He's dealing with the self-righteous crowd and he's really working on the hearts of the people listening to him uh, preach. So pastor last week preached on the hating heart, and he said the alternative title was Your Cheating Heart, and we looked at that, how people had this hateful heart. Well, today we look at your adulterous heart, and if we had an alternative heart uh, message, an alternative title, it would be Shot to the Heart, You're the Blame, You Give Love a Bad Name, all right? And so he goes right to the heart, and these people are giving love a bad name, and they're doing things that don't model the love that God has, a promise-keeping God has towards his people. And self-righteousness is something that none of us are immune from. And so as you listen today, I hope you don't turn off and say, that's not for this crowd, you know, or this is not for me, because self-righteousness is something that all of us are prone to do. Pastor showed us so clearly last week um, that Jesus is mocking the way that religious people have tried to change the meaning of the Bible to make their wicked, hating hearts comfortable that they try to change the meaning of the Bible to make their hateful hearts comfortable, that it's okay to do this or that, or they add to the Bible. He had some humorous examples. His dad never would have liked me having a beard. He said, it's not in the Bible. The pastor looked and didn't find it, and he gave several more examples. And then, as our moms would always say, you know, cleanliness is next to godliness, or whatever was next to godliness is whatever she wanted it to be, you know, taking out the trash or whatever. But we make these Bible verses, and it sounds like old English, so it must be Bible. We can't question it. Um, and so they were doing this about things that really matter. They were adding to the Bible here. And um, Jesus is mocking here the way religious people, they make a law, then they accomplish it, then they feel accomplished, that they achieve the goal that they set for themselves, and they win, like playing a game with a kid. They win every time because they're making the rules as they go, and that's what these self-righteous people did. And so today we see the self-righteousness continues in this area of adultery. That's what Matthew 5 deals with. It's dealing primarily with self-righteousness, but it's giving examples of, the example of where the self-righteousness is coming in. So first thing I'd like to say to you, verse number, starting here in verse number 27, it says, You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou hast said. Thou hast said, are these ready available, easy to make bricks. And with these thou hout says that we've had in our lives, we have a tendency to build a self-righteous facade around our heart. So we make all these thou hout says, we make all these rules for ourselves that uh, aren't in the Bible, and we take them and we build this fake facade in front of our hearts so that people looking at us don't see our heart, but they see this beautiful facade that we have built by performing and doing these things. That's what the scribes and Pharisees did then, and it's what continues to happen today if we're not careful, is that we build 
this facade around our heart that not only does it become so convincing the people that look on the outside, we begin to convince ourselves that there's not a matter of the heart that needs to be deal, dealt with because we've done such a great job at faking it for so long. Look what Jesus says in Luke chapter number 16 and verse number 15. He just really gets to it. I love when Jesus speaks to anybody in the gospel records, no matter what they talk about, he sometimes just ignores what they're saying and he really goes to the heart of the matter. When he's talking to Nicodemus, if you want to know what the people are thinking, you can always look at what Jesus says because he just really goes to the heart of it. Luke 16:15, he said, And he said unto them, Ye are that which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts, for that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God sees the heart even though we may see the externals. So he looks right into your heart. And week after week, we'll come to church. Day after day, we'll spend time in the Bible. And as we do, we look for another brick to build this facade of who we are. And God says, I want your heart. I don't want just the performance from you. I could have got this any way I want. I want your heart because I love you. And that's the same message in the Old Testament we're going to look at. He's always wanted the heart of man. He's never just wanted us to be a follower of a list of rules. He's always wanted a relationship here. Matthew 7:15 warns us that there's going to be a group of false prophets that go around in sheep clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. And he warns us about these false prophets because they have this homemade version of righteousness. They're peddling it out their back door and saying, yeah, we know there's righteousness by being forgiven of sin, where well, they would never acknowledge this, but there's righteousness when you recognize that you're a sinner and you come to Jesus and say, I've tried my very best, I've done everything that I know to do, now what would you have me do, Jesus? And he says, you're doing exactly what I would have you to do. You come to me to have a relationship. Well, they're peddling this homemade brew out their back door, and they're making this, made, this self-made righteousness that we often buy into because it's quicker and it's easier than maintaining a relationship. We love to-do lists, you know. Um, in, the, in the couples retreat that we had, we talked a lot about living with your wife with understanding and getting to know them and working on that relationship and the matters of the heart. But you know what the easiest thing is? Is when he gives you a list of things to do. If he says, okay, just buy, at this time of day buy flowers, at this time of day say I love you, and if there was just a list, it would be easy, but it doesn't work like that because every list is different. You know, what flowers mean to your wife means something different to somebody else. So you have to have this relationship. And the list, even though it looks hard, it's a much easier way to go about doing it. You see, Pharisees and scribes had such a superficial view of sin that they were able to accommodate it with a superficial view of salvation. It really lowered what sin was there. And can I just remind you what sin is? Just real quickly, Leviticus were told that that's rebellion towards God. It is waving your fist the face of an almighty God and saying, my way is better than your way, so I will act upon my desires and not your desires for me. First John 3, 4 tells us that it's the breaking of law, it's the transgression, that we are cosmic lawbreakers, that we weren't just speak, we were not just getting a fine by those that in the county because of what we were doing, that the God of heaven, our creator, said, this is right and this is wrong, and we broke that law. It can also be attitudes and acts that express are in gratitude. In Acts 17, 28, we're told that, that it's just an expression that how could, a, how could we ever dare to go against the God of heaven who knows everything, who knows the hairs upon our head. He knows what's best for us, 
He doesn't keep sin away from us because he doesn't want us to have fun, um, but because he knows that it hurts us. And this expresses ingratitude uh, to him. Sin does. It's um, humanly incurable. Jeremiah 13, 23 says a leper can't remove its spots, an Ethiopian can't change the color of skin. That There is nothing you can do. And no matter what religion tells you, no matter who you talk to, there's nothing you can do to cure your own sin. There's not enough. There is not a, I sinned when I was younger, but I think I'm going to make up for it in the rest of my life. You don't have an economy for it. You don't have a magic erase, eraser for sin. You can't do anything about it. You actually, when you go to the stains of sin in your life and try to fix it yourself, you make it worse. That's what my wife tells me. If I'm trying to clean up a mess, she says, no, you'll just make it worse. It's true, okay? And she's shaking her head because she says, I don't know if you've ever offered to clean up a stain or anything like that. All right, and I'm making it worse. Here's a great example of what I'm talking about there. And it's hard work. Sin is hard work. It really is. The way of the transgressor is hard. It's not the life that I want to live. You know, it's hard to say no to sin, but it's a lot harder to live in sin. Power of God. And then we find ourselves so many steps away, and he loves us. And and we say, how do I get back to where I'm at? I've made all these steps, and I've sinned. And his answer is to come to me. You know, it's not just a road map. You've done all these things. I follow this road map back. He says, no, it's not a road map. It's a person that you need to run to. How serious is sin? It brings death. The wrath of God abided on you. Because of your sin in your life, by birth and by choice. That's how big a deal sin is. Also, sin's such a big deal. Think about the drastic measure that it took for sin to be paid for. It took the God of heaven coming, taking on a robe of flesh, and going to a cross to pay for sin. You ever go to a store and you look around and you say, Oh, this stuff looks nice. I don't. And then you look at a price tag, you're going, Whoa, I had no idea that something could be that expensive. So can you take a moment to say, whoa, when I look at the price tag of the cross, I remember that that sin that I've just been letting stay there in my heart, it is a big deal. It's not a big deal when I look at my neighbor. It's not a big deal when I think about the consequences. It's not a big deal when I compare myself with other people. But then I look at the price tag and I say, wow, sin is a big, big deal. Then drastic measures should be taken to avoid it. Did you catch it in our reading earlier? It says if your hand is offending you, cut it off. If your eye is offending you, pluck it out. Drastic measure. We'll look at those verses more. But if you get see nothing else out of those verses, and that sin is such a big deal that it ought to be dealt with. And so if it, it, may, it, it may be more than inconvenient. It may be changing of a lifestyle. It may be accountability. It may be a million different things. But whatever your answer to sin is, it ought to be drastic. It ought to be acted upon. And even today, you know, I don't know your heart, and I really wouldn't want to, okay? But I don't know your heart, but I know the Holy Spirit does. And he may put that finger upon your heart and say, no, this is what he's talking about. But you know this is something you've been dealing with for a long time. This is sin. It's going to hurt you. I love you. You need to avoid this. And you cut that out. You know, you, you get rid of that in your life because you have that power. You're better than a person with an arm cut off. You're better with a person with an eye out because you're a person with a new heart. You know, that's the organ transplant that you need to fix. It's the heart. And as a believer, you have a new heart. So your heart tells your hand what to do. Your heart can tell your eye what to do, and you've already received that. I'm getting ahead of myself, and I'm excited about that. I'm excited that I have that power. I'm excited that I don't really need to cut my arm off because it really wouldn't fix anything, would it? If I cut my arm off, I'm just going to do double time with my other hand at sinning if I don't change uh, my heart. So they were hiding and ignoring their adultery here. This is where the self-righteousness comes in. They're hiding in verse number 28. But I've said to you that whoso looketh on a woman to lust 
after her committed adultery with her already in her heart. So their facade is a lack of action. My heart doesn't have this in it. There's not adultery in it because he's hiding it behind the eyes and in the heart. And so he thinks nobody sees it, nobody knows about it. But God says, I not only see your, your day planner, but I see what's going on in your heart. The heart is filled with adultery and the person here wanting to find an object on which it can attach the fantasy. It doesn't say that when you look upon it, you will sin. It says that you've already sinned. Because that's where the, that look comes from. It's the vile, adulterous heart that results in this wanton look. And do you see here that it's already there in your heart? It's hard to quantify it, but men know the difference between looking at something and seeing beauty and lusting after it. But can I tell you men in here and ladies that that, that, that sin that happened is a symptom of something already going on in your life? It's not circumstantial. It's not just your environment. It's that the, the heart that is looking for that will always find something to put their fantasy on. That when that's in their heart, when that discontent, that ingratitude, that lack of love for where they should have it, that lack of love for their wife, for their youth, when it's there, they're going to find it no matter where they go. Ladies, you can help as well because you're not guilty of it, but you could be found as an accomplice to this. In Job 31, it says it's a, a, um, it's a horrible crime, this thing of adultery. It's a horrible um, crime that you would do that. And so if you dress in a way that you would want to bring that on, then you're an accomplice to that. But can I tell you, men in here, there's not enough that women could do to keep us from that if we have a lustful heart. Because once that is in our heart, we are going to find it wherever we look. And because when you look and you look to lust and you look to covet and that fantasy comes, it's saying that sin was already taking place. There, let me read it for you in verse Again, but I send you that whosoever looked on the woman lust after us had committed adultery with her already in his heart. He's already committed adultery in his heart, and then now he looks and it's lustful. Now he has an object to it that it goes to, but the sin is already there. That's why it doesn't that we should have a, a, a defense against ourselves and be careful where we put our eyes. But if your heart is already looking for it, you're going to find it wherever you go. There's not going to be enough accountability because the wicked heart always finds what it craves and it's looking for, and you can't stop it. So you just change the heart. I don't think this is standard operating procedure in middle school, and so I doubt this happened to you. I've never heard of anybody else saying this. But I was in middle school, and I thought it was a good idea one day to bring over the high schoolers um, for a sexual education talk with the seventh grade middle schoolers. And one of the things that the high schoolers did is they had these posters, and in the poster they set up these different things. They said holding hands, and it went the whole gauntlet of spectrum of things that they could do. And they said, I want you to go stand underneath the poster in which you think is wrong. You choose what is wrong. And from the looks of you, none of you dealt with this. And I'm pretty sure it was the first and last time that ever happened. Now that I've mentioned that, I don't remember ever seeing that teacher again uh, the next year. Uh, but as we were there, and as a se in seventh grade, I was already a believer. I didn't know what I knew now. But I was just thinking, how do these people get to decide what's right and wrong? Like, how did they decide that poster or that poster? I mean, who tells them this? And I was thinking, I wanted to go to the chalkboard and um, teenagers chalkboard. It's like the marker board. See, see, some people even think I'm old. Okay, this section, these people even think I'm old. Okay, and so well, I wanted to go to the chalkboard and write my own definition. I wanted to say, who thinks all of this is wrong, and then and stand under it because I knew that sin didn't start by an action that my sin towards opposite sex to be started now 
and it was in my heart. I didn't know how to say it, but I knew that it was there, and that so much of what was going on. And to you, those who have been in the church for a long time, most of your sin has taken place in your heart. And you can take pride in the fact that it never lived itself out, but a part of it is you're just a coward, you know? It's that you just never acted upon it. It isn't honorable that you didn't act upon it. It was just you also you like the prestige of looking good, and you also like the hidden sin, so you're trying to get the best of both worlds. And so don't, pat, don't break your arm patting yourself on the back because your sins have been internal where our other brothers and sisters have been external, and we have seen that. Could I have an amen there, please? Thank you. I understand what Pastor says when he feels all alone up here. It is a lot lonelier than it looks, all right? Um, so here we go. They created a rule here. It's, it's all about the heart, and it's always been about the heart. It was never about a list of rules in the Old Testament, and it's never been from day one of creation. It's been about a relationship with the God of heaven. And they created a and so first of all, they hid it. So they're, they're making this facade, and they're looking like they're not adulterous because they're not acting on it because they're just keeping it in this hidden closet in their heart, and nobody knows that's where they go to to live out these fantasies. But secondly, they did it by they created a rule uh, that they followed. So they made a rule, and by following it, they felt self-righteous. And that's what verse 32 says. But I say unto you that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her, that is, divorced, commit adultery. What was happening here was musical chairs. They were taking a passage in Deuteronomy chapter number 24, verses 1 and 2. And that passage, I'll summarize it for you. It says, if a man finds fault with his wife, um, and here they, they were making it, if you read in the commentaries there, they were just making anything. If they found she was obnoxious, if she, she burnt the breakfast, if she didn't make breakfast, they just said, if you found fault in your wife here, and then he gives her a letter of divorcement, she remarries, and the second husband finds something against her. He gives her a letter of divorcement. She cannot return to the first husband because she has become an adulterer, uh, which was caused by the first husband. And so what they see, they read that, and they say, you know what? So we can get a divorce if we put it on paper. See, that is the logic that is produced by the mind of a person with a self-righteous heart. They hear God's heart on an issue, and they say, Oh, you're saying that as long as I don't just do it verbally, which in some cultures would say, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you, it would be done. You're telling us that if we do it by putting it on paper, that's what you want for us to do. Because they weren't looking for a relationship. They were looking for a rule they could live by, and so they were doing that. And so this was a time where people were taking a wife and putting her away, and they felt self-righteous because they were doing it in a way by writing a letter that is there. Can I tell you, I grew up in a home where my mom and dad were divorced early. And because of that, those of you that have dealt with this in life, I would never want to say a single word in here that would hurt my mom. And I think about that today. But because I did grow up in a home like that, and because I do talk about my mom to, to my mom about this, she would say that if you're in a room full of teenagers and young married people, please do not take away the teeth of the Bible when you talk about the pain of divorce. And it hurts people here. And so they were looking to, to just take away the pain of it because they're like, well, we're following this. But we know that it hurts people. We know from experience, we know through that, and we know from the word of the Lord that that is not his heart um, on the issue. And what he was doing here was he was trying to teach on how to prevent adultery, how in sin it had, a divorce had come and it had hurt people, and he was teaching them how not to add up to that, and they had taken it to make a rule 
out of it. And that is the logic that is produced by the mind of a person with a self-righteous heart. You imagine reading that scripture and saying, oh, you're saying all we got to do is write a letter. And he says that's not the heart of the matter um, at all. God was teaching them not to add the sin of adultery to the, to the pain that is already there. They did not want a musical chairs in marriage. 1979 in Newsweek, a lady writes an incredibly a great article about divorce, and she's not a believer, and she says, my friends, after 18 years of marriage, are getting a civilized divorce. I object. I think people should be upset about so serious a thing as divorce. And her article wasn't talking about right and wrong about divorce, but what she was saying was, I just can't believe that it's civilized. I can't believe there's not a shedding of tears. I can't believe there's not a, a breaking of hearts, that everybody is just okay with it. They couldn't stand that it was civilized. So we hide behind that. We hide adultery in our heart. Nobody ever sees it, but it's hidden in our heart. We also hide it by, by creating a role and say it's okay because I do it um, in a certain uh, way or a certain manner. And then another way that we do it, we don't find it in this passage, but we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter number 6. And we also find it today in our society. It's, it's, it's a biological thing. That a relationship, a man with a woman, is just a biological thing. It's nothing, it doesn't mean anything. We are painfully uncreative in our excuses before God. When people go around today and talk about friends with benefits, they say that sex outside of marriage is not a, it's not, it doesn't mean anything because it's not emotional, it's not an attachment, it's just things that humans do. It's biological. We're not very creative. They've been saying that from the beginning of time. In 1 Corinthians 6, 13, it says, Meats for the belly and the belly for meat, but God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. So they say, Meats for the belly and belly is for meat. So let's all go on and let's have a party. And God says that's not the case. The, be- the meat may be for the belly, but your belly is for me. Your belly belongs unto the Lord. And so our lives and, and our bodies belong to him. I know it's really cheesy, but it's always stuck with me, even from summer camp as a teenager, when a guy said, I would like, some friends invited him to do something, and they said, I would really like to, but I don't have any hands. I'm like, what do you mean you don't have any hands? I see your hands. He says, no. You don't understand these hands, they don't belong to me. These belong to God, and God would not want to do that with his hands. What a wonderful thing, huh? As our children, we have a dedication service here, and we dedicate them to the Lord, and the parents say this belongs to God. I hope you remind them from every stepping stone in their life that you don't belong to us, you don't belong to yourself, you belong to the Lord. So we see this facade that happens around the heart, but Jesus comes in, and he destroys the wall, and he reveals their heart. They were unconcerned about God's heart on the matter. They were just concerned about their image and what they were legally allowed to do. Jesus never condones divorce, but he states that it will happen as a result of adultery um, in a marriage. And he tells that about the wife that will go on or the husband and go on and get married after they have been forsaken there. God not only does not only not mandate divorce for adultery, but he gives a very vivid example in Hosea of a promise keeper that he is. Remember that story in Hosea where God says, I'm going to call my prophet and I'm going to have him marry a prostitute because I want them to know how I keep a promise and I'm going to show Israel how much I love them. And this, all these things go on with Hosea and he provides for her and he pursues her because he is illustrating the promise keeping that God has done. And that's the way we should keep our promises as well. That despite that, he doesn't mandate that because of adultery, divorce may happen. He says it will happen. But the example given here 
is that we pursue, that we love, and that we never give up on somebody and then they will have to forsake us, but we will not forsake them. Hosea marries a prostitute who provides for her. It's a powerful testimony to God as the promise keeper to the children of Israel. He is our example of our faithful, covenant-keeping God. See, Jesus reveals that man is unable to accomplish this with a rich man. So it's a matter of the heart. So he's saying, guys, you don't even care about what my heart is on the issue. You just want to make a rule that you can follow. In Matthew chapter number 19, you know it as a story of the rich young ruler. We start in verse number 21. And you're going to see this example of a person that had built a facade by following the rules and by making these rules that they would follow. It says, Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you that, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they asked a very logical question. It's the one that I would ask if I was there. And they heard this, they were exceedingly amazed and said, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said, With men this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. It's in this passage that Jesus reveals that this man is un, unable to accomplish what needs to be accomplished. Because even though he's able to keep the externals, he's not able to deal with the heart. There's something that has to be impossibly done in his heart. External behavior is but nothing um, from what's happening on the inside. He says, I'm not really impressed with all that you've done because I am God and I see your heart. And he says, let me give you an example of how your heart is. Hey, go sell your stuff and give it to your neighbor and to the poor. And he says, I don't want to do that. And Jesus says, well, there, the guy knows he's convicted. He says, I know why I don't want to do that. Because even though I can follow all the rules that I like, my heart is not towards my neighbor. My heart is not given to charity. There's no love for the neighbor found in the heart of this rich man. It's easier for a camel in through the eye of the needle. And so the disciples say, well, then if that's the case, it's impossible. But Jesus tells them that he's not asking for man to do something that could be accomplished apart from him. The disciples throw their hands up and they're saying, well, there's no way we can do it. If you're saying that the test isn't this external, it's the inward heart of loving your neighbor and loving God, there's no way we can do it. That's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. There's no way we can do it. And Jesus says, exactly right. There's no way you can do it apart from me. That he has never provided a way that you could do it apart from him because he wants a relationship. He wants to do it with you. He doesn't want to give you a manual and say, go do it and come back to me. He says, I want to be a father to you. I want to have a relationship here with you. So Jesus here is teaching that there's no physical remedy for a heart problem. So you could cut off your arm and pluck out your eye. But there be what's saying here, there's nothing more precious to you. The right arm, which for most people is the stronger arm, and the right eye. And if it's going to cause you to pander after sin in your heart and with your desires, you should eliminate it which means there's nothing there. There's nothing in your life that should be so strong that you don't get rid of it. Throw it away. I won't mention the name, but somebody who's very close to being life that's no longer um, serving in the ministry, but he got to a point and he just got involved in pornography and he couldn't stop it. And so he goes out one day and he throws it underneath his car and he runs over it. And he tells the secretary that he accidentally broke his computer and uh, because he was fighting something there. And in that moment in his office, he realized that no $800, $900 computer or whatever it was 
was more valuable. So he's beginning to get the understanding that drastic measure ought to be taken. But it wasn't much longer that he comes into the office and he's the lust in his heart was first in pornography and now the lust in his heart had come upon he's having an affair. He's about to leave his wife and his child and he doesn't know what to do and he knows that he's going down the road that leads to destruction that's going to hurt people. And he walks over to a filing cabinet made out of metal and he takes a, a magnet and he holds it and out and he drops it and the magnet goes to it. And he says, that's how I feel about where I'm going in life. That I cannot stop the desires of my heart from acting upon them. You see, you can run over your computer, but if your heart stays the same, you're going to replace the computer with a person. Or you're going to replace the computer with another person. Or you're going to replace whatever it is with something else. And obviously, we're talking about adultery here. It's easy to see, but it needs to be dealt with that day in the office on a heart level and not on a hardware level of a computer. And it led down a path to destruction, and it hurt many people, and I'm one of those people that it hurt deeply. As life had great influence, the fall had a great influence as well. I'm happy to say that he's faithfully serving in the church and trying to honor God in the marriage that he is in, forsaking that and recognizing it as sin and receiving the grace that he needed in that moment. And can I tell you how much that he need grace and forgiveness for that sin? He needed it just as much as people like me in verse number 27 who would ever look upon a woman to lust needed forgiveness. You see, you can't take this passage and beat people over the head in verse number 32 because the handle to this passage in verse number 27 says all of us in here are guilty and need of forgiveness. But we say he is Lord and we say what he says about a subject is right and and that's what we believe about it. So we're told to mortify our members here. Cut them off, you know. Could you imagine, Santiago, we're going to have a service here and it's going to be the mortifying service. You come up here. We got hacksaws, we got chainsaws. Tell me what your problem is today, all right? You're having a problem with your wallet? Okay, let me cut that out of you. You can't have a wallet anymore. You have a problem, uh, whatever it is, let me take care of it. That's, so, but there is a way in which Colossians 3 5 says that we mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. We're mortifying the members. In Job 31 verse 8, Job says, if I break this covenant, keep food away from me. He says, I want to keep this covenant so bad that if I don't, I don't even want to eat. That I want to take drastic measures in it. So how do we go and take these drastic measures that are needed? And it tells us there in Colossians 3, 2. It says, you kill your members that sin by setting your affections on things above. Set your affections on things above, not on the things of this earth. So those body members, the eye, the arm, and whatever it is that is being controlled by your heart that's acting and doing these wrong things, you know how you mortify it? You look into the face of Jesus, and you look at the cross, and you stare at it, and your arm begins to scream because it begins to realize that there's somebody else now in charge. And then your eye says, I don't like what's happening here. My vision is being changed because when you stare at Jesus, the heart changes, and the outward flow of it through your eye gate and through your hand will change as well, and you mortify it. So now that was a weapon of destruction is now something that can be used for good because you've looked and set your affections on the things of the heart there. And that's how you go about cutting these members off. You see, the problem is not the arm, but it is the heart. The problem is not the computer, it's the heart. The problem is not where circumstantial, it is the heart. And you need to address the appetite or your systems will never help you. The heart, not the eye, 
it must be replaced. So if you're a, not a believer in here and you've never had that heart transplant, can I tell you that the Bible tells you that you are a servant to sin. That you may have some what appears to be victory at times, but you really are powerless over it. You're as a puppet on a string, and you need to cut the strings off today. And you do that by the new heart given to you as a new creature um, in Jesus Christ. Joseph did not avoid adultery just by running. You know how he did it? His heart was prepared. As soon as he heard what was going on, he's like, I'm out of here. You know, here's an opportunity. I already know what I do when opportunity comes. I run. A grown man runs out of a room. Think about how much he must have wanted that. When you give a man everything, go back to Genesis and you'll see this. You give a man everything and you say one thing is off limit, what does the man want? He wants the one thing off limit. What was the one thing off limits to Joseph? It was that woman. So if God, he could have very easily begun to fantasize about having everything. If I have that woman, I have everything. But what his heart was prepared for, it was ready to run. Ezra will not will help you in Ezra 7, 10. It says that we prepare our heart. Something the high schoolers went through recently is that we prepare our heart to study. When you came in today, you came with a heart prepared for one thing or another. And those that came with a heart prepared, I pray, will leave with something. If you did not come with your heart prepared, you're not going to get as much as others. Daniel 1.8 says, Before all these things happen, I purposed in my heart I would not defile myself. So what is your heart prepared for today? What is it set on gold to do? You have a heart right now, and it is set towards something. And maybe it's you're in here, and your heart is set towards adultery. Maybe your heart is set towards hate. Maybe your heart is set towards something else. But only you and God know what your heart is set to. And none of your systems are going to work if you do not reset that heart by setting your affections on the things of God. We should pray as the psalmist in 139, he says, Search my heart, O God, and know my heart, and try me, and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Don't just wait for the opportunity and ask God to give you strength. Right now, have that premeditated sin. It's, it's that Abraham with his wife, and he says, Hey, when we get into that city, tell everybody you're my sister. What a chump, huh? He says, when you go in that city, I want you to tell everybody I'm sin. That's a premeditated sin. He said, I already know what my heart's going to do. I have the heart of a coward. So if we get in a situation and my, me saying you're my sister helps me, that's what my heart says to do. Because he had the heart of a coward. Well, some of you are going to leave here today and you have premeditated sin. And can I tell you, teenager in here, you're going to have opportunity. I don't know what's in your heart today, but the next five to ten years we're going to get to find because all those things that you dream of doing, they're going to happen. Some earlier than others, but eventually lust and desire is going to be met with opportunity and there's going to be sin. But I pray that there's some dreams and desires in your heart to do something great for God and then opportunity will be met with it and we will get to look someday and say, so that's what he was daydreaming about when he wasn't listening to me in Sunday school or that's what he was thinking about um, on that time. So here, lastly, in closing, how do we zone our hearts in areas where around our heart to prevent this type of construction? So you've got a heart, the self-righteous heart wants to build a facade around it so we don't deal with issues of the heart, we don't deal with that relationship, so we just want to build a wall around it. Then Jesus comes in and knocks down that wall, and he deals with the heart. And so now you're in here, and there's just a heart, you and God, and you say, I don't want to build the wall. I built, uh, there's been times in my life where I built a wall and it's just a tiring exercise and it never works. So I want to zone the land around my heart so that we cannot build this self-righteous facade around it. 
Let me give you some biblical advice here, how we go about doing it. We must fill our hearts with the I have saids of Scripture. First of all, it says they have said of old time. That's how you build a self-righteous wall. But how do you build and make sure that you're not um, building around your heart? You fill it with the I have saids of Scripture. You say, what does God say on it? What is Not only does what does God say about it, but what is God's heart on the issue? How does he address this um, in the Scripture here? I didn't come to set Moses aside, Jesus said. I didn't come to change one single thing. I just came to put it back to where it belongs. That's Matthew 5.17 where he says, I've not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. He says, this isn't a third option. You know, Moses said something, and now you have said something, and I want to say something different. He says, I am a fulfillment of what Moses said. And they're like, what are you talking about? Moses was all about following the list of the rules. We're all about following the list of the rules. And Jesus says, no, he wasn't. He said, I know Moses. You know, I'm God here, all right? He said, Moses was about a heart relationship, and I am about a heart relationship as well. The self-righteous would love to replace a relationship with God for a rule book that they can go carry around with them. Because if we carry around a rule book with us, then we could have the authority and we could reinterpret the law. We could say, yeah, God, I know what you said, and I reinterpret it to say something else. And he says, I don't want just a rule book. I want a relationship here with you. Tinsley drew me a picture. We were gone for a couple days. Think of you'll put that up there. But she drew this picture, and when I got home, she said, Daddy, you've got mail. And uh, so she gave me this little card, and uh, I'm, I think it's me. And it uh, looks like me. And she gave me, it looks like me, Jeff says, I see it, all right? And so she gave me this card. So could you imagine I go set this card on my desk, and um, I say, I really love that card. Tinsley loves me, and she made that card. And Robert walks by, and he says, you know what? I think Trent likes it when you draw note cards. I think that I ought to make some note cards for Trent. And then a week later, Robert comes to me and says, Hey, Trent, you've got mail. And I get a picture like this. And he sets it on my desk. And he says, So what do you think about that? And I would say, That's really creepy, Robert. Never do anything like this again. We've got to get offices. I've got to have a door between me and you. And it's got to have a lock. That would be silly, wouldn't it? He's like, I'm just going to mimic what I saw, and I will develop a relationship here with you. This is not a perfect illustration. It's not from the Bible. And I'm not saying God has a different list, not a different desire for you as he does others. But this idea that we just look and we mimic the externals, what everybody else is doing, is a silly way to go about having a relationship. No, Robert would say, hey, we're friends. And because we're friends, I know you like chicken wings. And I can afford chicken wings. So I will buy you chicken wings. Thank you, Ryan Murphy. All right. And so he would do what he is able to do about it. You understand that? It's a silly illustration, but we do this all the time. We say, God, I'm making you these drawings. I see you like these drawings. I'm copying somebody else. And he would say, I want you. I want time with you. Stop running around mimicking what everybody else is doing. I want to sit down and I want to talk to you tomorrow morning. I've already wrote the book. All you got to do is sit down and do that. And when you pray, I'll listen to you. What a wonderful thing that we have there. So here, the self-righteous want to replace a relationship with a list of rules that they get to make up and reinterpret. Parenting and the Christian life, we say that rules without a relationship yield rebellion. You know that with your children. Can I tell you in your Christian life the same way? If you try to follow this as a list of rules and you don't have a relationship with the author of this book, it's going to breed rebellion because you're going to get frustrated. And you're not, eventually you're going to try to do better. Eventually you're just going to give up and say, forget that. I tried that. I need another option. You see, the scribes that Jesus was teaching, they didn't know it was a continuation of the Old Testament that God is unchangeable. And the Old Testament is not building a relationship on law. It's building a relationship on love. In Deuteronomy, which is the second recording of the law, 
you're going to see time and time again when you read it in your Bible, if you look for it, it says, I want to love I want you to love me. I want you to love me. I want you to love me. I want a heart commitment. I want a heart devotion. I want a wholehearted kind of genuine affection for me. You see, the law was not the cause of the relationship, but it was a result of it. We're going through Exodus. God loved his people. He brought us out. He took us out of Egypt. He brought us into the promised land. And he says, I love you, I love you, I love you. And then we say, we love you, we love you, we love you. And he says, okay, well, let me help you regulate that love. Let me teach you how to love. Let me give you these Ten Commandments. And I'm going to say to you in the Ten Commandments, you shouldn't have any other gods before me because love is loyal. Love is loyal. And you take that to your marriage. You should have no graven images because love is faithful. You should not take the Lord's name in vain because love is reverent. You should remember the Sabbath because love is separated and holy and set aside. You should honor your father and mother because love is respectful. You shouldn't kill because love values people and it's humane. You shouldn't commit adultery because love is pure. You shouldn't steal because love is not selfish. And you should not bear false witness because you are loving people and loving people are honest. It's a book about love. It's not a book about rules. It's all about love. And what does God require of his children? We find in Deuteronomy 10 and 12. Now Israel, what does the Lord thou require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God and to walk in all his ways and to love him and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. And then in verse 19, he says, Love you therefore the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You miss that in Deuteronomy when you're just making a list of things to do for yourself. You're going to miss that. And that's no different than the gospel. That's no different than what Paul would say is exactly the message, the gospel, and the New Testament. That you love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 10.16, if you don't believe yet, it's about the heart. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart, and be not more stiff-necked. He says, I'm going for your heart. And then we finish out Deuteronomy, the next so many verses, the next ten verses. He shows how it's lived out. Chapter 26, he has a big dedication and in that big dedication, they say, love the Lord and keep his statutes, but love him with all your heart. Chapter 27, he says, I'm going to send Joshua in. I don't get to go to that land, but as soon as you get in, I want you to remind everybody that we're supposed to love the Lord with all of our hearts. Chapter 28, you've got blessings, you've got cursings, you've got blessings and cursings. He says, if you want blessings in life, love the Lord with all your heart. And if you want cursings, then follow after sin, because sin has consequences. In verse number 29, it's a heart commitment that he is asking for chapter 29 and 30. And that's why when we get to Matthew chapter number 22, it makes sense. And when he says in verse 36, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the great and this is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, that thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So these scribes and Pharisees were people that were obeying laws, but they had nothing to hang it on, and they were making a mess. And he says, hang it on these two. Love the Lord with all your heart, and love your neighbor, and everything else will hang upon those two things. And that ought to be, So God's divine, eternal standard, no one can keep. And so we see it with the rich, rich man. He says, nobody can keep that. The rich man walks away and he says, I can't do that. But he should have said, I can't do that. That's what you tell Jesus. What you've asked for me to do, I can't do. And Jesus says, you're right. With the heart you have right now, you can't. Take this heart. Now try it. Now go out and live these things. 
And the sacrificial system didn't make men right with God. It simply pointed out that only God could make them right with Him. He pointed out they needed a sacrifice. He pointed out their inabilities. Why do we have a sacrificial system in the Old Testament when we have a list of all these rules? Because he knew that they could not keep them. He knew they couldn't keep them externally, and he definitely knew they couldn't keep them internally. He says, so I have a way for you to repent and ask for forgiveness and receive the grace of God and that sacrifice that is there. So I want to encourage you in here today, what should you do with this teaching? Maybe you've seen today that the facade does not change the fact that you have a heart of adultery. Maybe I don't know that about your heart and nobody sees that about you, but maybe men and ladies in here, you know that inside of your heart there's a heart that is set towards adultery and you're just one opportunity away from hurting many people. Maybe you've recognized or remembered how actions of the past concerning the former spouse did not reflect the heart of God. And if you recognize that in your life and you say what God says about the matter is what I believe about the matter, receive the forgiveness, move on with your life and thank Him for what He has done there and use your life in challenging other people in this way. You should stop a couple things here. You should stop trying to manufacture your own righteousness. Don't hide it deeper expecting that God won't see it. Don't try to justify your own actions by the manipulation or your perception of the rule. If in your heart today there's this adulterous heart, you have two options. You either take it and bring it out before God and repent and confess it, or you have to take it deeper because the Holy Spirit has woken you up to the fact that you know that it's there and it can't be left where it's at. You now have to dig a basement in that closet and bury it deeper or you have to bring it out and hand it over to him but eventually it will be known. Take In here you shouldn't be taking your sin lightly. You should take drastic actions. You should change the affections of your heart and the directions of your eyes today. Those are the things we should stop but what should we do? B, we should be excited about the fact that God has established his, restate, his relationship with you based on love and not rules. And I hope you're encouraged by that today. I hope you're encouraged by the fact that it's not a rule book, but it's a relationship that he wants. You should address the issue of your heart that will cause or have caused you and this to break the laws of God. You should recognize the need of sacrifice of the Christ on the cross because you did not meet the divine eternal standard. You go to him and say, I tried on my own and I wasn't doing very good. Now what should I do, Jesus? And you go to him and you repent and you remember the cross, how he had already paid for your shortcomings. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love mankind, mankind as you have loved yourself, knowing that all the prophet and the laws hang on this. And this is true in your relationship with God and your spouse, your kids, and all other relationships. It was said this week that a man who will fall in love with God and, and that will focus on his walk with God will accidentally be a better husband than a man who just decides to try to be a better husband. You know, if you'll just fall in love with God and love Him and His Word and get to know Him, you will be a, have a, a much better walk with the Lord than if you just go about trying to do it in your own power. Love precedes right actions, or right actions will try to replace your relationship with the one you love. If you're busy today with right actions that aren't motivated by love for God, those right actions will eventually replace your relationship with Him. So we go to God and we say, we see it in Deuteronomy, we see it in the New Testament, I want you in my life. And if in here today you're trying to fight adultery in your heart with only a system, would you come and put your heart before God and say, God, I want you to do work on my heart. If you're in here being self-righteous, thinking you're doing a great job at spinning the plates, 
Would you set the plates down and say, God, it's you that I want to know. I want my right actions to be motivated by a love for you, and I don't want my right actions to replace this relationship that I have. Miss Kristen comes to the piano. I'm going to ask you to respond today. Actually, I believe that the Word of God will ask that you will respond today. There should be drastic action taken in your life when sin is recognized, when the Holy Spirit puts that on your life. Maybe it's a sin of the adulterous heart. Maybe it's a sin of self-righteousness. Or maybe you didn't even deal with the heart last week when we talked about the hating heart. But allow the God of heaven to do something in your heart and go to Him and say, I internally don't meet the divine standard. I need the sacrifice. I need to set my my heart upon the affections of you. I need to look to you today. But I pray with everything in me that you will do business with the Lord, either here at the altar or at your seat. This message was recorded at Vision Baptist Church in Alfred, Georgia. For more information, log on to www.visionbaptist.com where you can find our service times, location, contact information, and more audio and video recordings.